Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani and I am the host. Today's storyteller is Sarah Patel. She works with opportunistic path pathogens. She's a PhD student in Pittsburgh. Um, we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about her research, we talk about pathogens in drinking water and any risks associated with that. Before you freak out, it's relatively low risk in the grand scheme of the world, so just don't freak out. But we're gonna talk about it so you'll get to learn more. Um, we talk about ways to mitigate pathogens in water. We talk about where drinking water even comes from, which is a little off topic, but also relevant. And yeah, we talk sort of like how she ended up in this field and yeah, you know, if you've been listening, you know sometimes we ramble off into tangents, but it's all STEM related. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. I don't know anything about pathogens or any of that, so that'll be exciting to hear about. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about it. It's something that like, you know, it's kind of a touchy subject to just tell the general public because it causes a lot of panic when there shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is like important to like research and yeah. work on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So. Yeah, I think that there's all kinds of things in general that we just like need to know about, but people are afraid to tell us about. <laughs> so. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that the best place to start is like why I decided to go into science in general and why I'm now in a PhD program. Um, so I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. Um, so I went to uh, college at the College of Worcester in Ohio because they had a great like pre-med track and, you know, you did like all this like independent research. Um, and of course, you know, becoming pre-med was like the best way to find out you don't want to be pre-med at all. Um, so I actually got a research position my first summer there, um, working with um, wastewater from Chicago and looking at the effect of um, disinfection on uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, so like other endocrine disrupting compounds and things like that. So I did that for two years um, and it was amazing, made me love science. So um, I did my capstone on um, protein stability in a novel organosilicate. Um, and then I decided I wanted to go to grad school because I love the process of doing research and then writing it up and then telling people about it. And I was good at it. So I was like, we can try this. Um, so. Um, I got into the University of Pittsburgh in their environmental engineering, um, and we don't do a lot of wetland work uh, in the department, uh, but my professor, my PI, um, is pretty new there, and she focuses on these opportunistic pathogens, so that's where, you know, my graduate, graduate work kind of led me to, so that's kind of how I got there. <laughs> um, so what is an opportunistic pathogen? Yes. So an opportunistic pathogen is some sort of microorganism um, that doesn't affect people who are healthy and immunotypical, uh, but are a huge problem for certain people, like um, people with, who are advanced in age, 
people with cancer, immunocompromised people, um, people with cystic fibrosis and other genetic disorders, um, people like that. Um, these are really big issues. Um, so I study three in particular. Um, so I look at Legionella pneumophila, which is the causative agent for Legionnaire's disease, uh, which is probably the most heard about from the three. Uh, that's kind of a problem. And, you know, we usually get these little outbreaks with um, contaminated uh, cooling towers is the main kind of outbreak source, but there is a low level infection rate across the United States, um, which is most likely caused by drinking water. Um, in addition to Legionella, we study uh, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, which cause like this atypical pneumonia um, in these uh, susceptible people, um, which is really hard to treat and causes all sorts of um, excellent complications, usually for people who already have respiratory problems. Uh, and then Pseudomonas arginosa, which causes everything from swimmer's ear infections to weird skin infections to, again, this weird atypical respiratory infection that's hard to treat. Um, so those are the three opportunistic pathogens that you most commonly hear about in the field and what we are studying. Yeah, so it's like they take, they, you know, take opportunity of someone that doesn't have a perfect immune system, basically. That's why it's called exactly. that. Oh, that sucks. It's not like you know it's there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's challenging. Um, yeah, it's important to, like, keep an eye on these things. Um, like, the main places where these opportunistic pathogens are a big deal are like in elderly care facilities where you have a lot of people who are older and have compromised immune systems are like engaging with drinking water or in hospitals whenever a lot of people are on it like immune suppressing medication um, places like that it's really critical to try and figure out how to minimize the risk associated um, with drinking water, um, which is where these pathogens are most, you're most likely to engage with them is in this drinking water. Um, so that's what our lab studies. Uh, I currently am working on one project about those and planning and hopefully sooning to, soon to work on two other ones. Uh, so the one we're currently doing, we have a custom built shower rig in the absolute like belly of our um, our engineering building. It's in the sub-basement, which is below the regular basement. And it's three big stalls. They're just like what you would see in someone's house. Um, and they are rigged to three shower heads and they all connect to their individual water heaters. So it's like this amazing, like real life situation where we can study how these pathogens colonize fresh plumbing and how certain changes at the point of exit of this drinking water can be used to help mitigate uh, that risk. So. Okay, um, I, I have two things. Yes. First, why does it seem that cool science always happens in some weird sub-basement? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you know, that's a really great, great question. I'm sure it's just because of the lack of windows, you know, no, no distractions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. So then my other, my other thought when you're talking about that is, uh, yeah, I was wondering how 
you mitigate something that's in the drinking water, you know, and also how it maybe gets in the drinking water in the first place. So I guess that's a Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we're really lucky that we don't have to think about the safety of our drinking water on a daily basis in most places in the U.S. Um, because we have this, you know, drinking water treatment process that our, all of the water that comes out of our tap goes through. So usually at the end of like a whole bunch of steps like filtration and, you know, sedimentation, things like that, there's a disinfection step um, to make sure that you're not going to be ingesting harmful pathogens. Uh, so whenever the water leaves the or leaves the treatment plant and goes into the distribution system, that water is, you know, pretty, you know, pretty uh, disinfected. Um, but as it makes its long journey from the drinking water treatment plant to your home, you know, it stops along the way. It takes a while to mosey through the pipes. Um, and along with that, this, um, the disinfectant that they use at the plant gets used up. Um, and actually by the time you turn on your tap, there is about, I believe it's like 1 billion to 1 trillion microorganisms in a liter of drinking water. And that's usually not a big deal. Usually they're friendly. Um, but because of this period of stagnation, um, the growth of a biofilm, which is like the slimy gunk in your like drains that you have to clean out, um, that occurs in all pipes. <laughs> um, and like their availability to, you know, constant nutrients. Um, while the water flows through this biofilm in the pipes, these pathogens just really love living in it. Um, and you know, there's not a lot you can do to solve the problem because how, if you put too much disinfectant, um, then it's going to be a problem with the endpoint user. But if you don't put it, like, it's hard to get rid of them essentially without doing some really dramatic things to the entire system, which just is not feasible. So mm -hmm. the best place to focus for mitigation is at the point of use. So like they're going, these bugs are going to live in your water and that's kind of how it is in the way we do, we deliver our drinking water, but how can we prevent it from becoming a problem in the home essentially? As an answer to that kind of question, what, how do we stop this exposure for people who are at risk? Um, there is a, a school of thought in the field that aerosols containing these opportunistic pathogens are what causes these respiratory infections, which makes sense. You know, you're breathing in the bug and it lands in your lungs. Um, and the main way that we interact with aerosols from drinking water is through showering. You know, when it gets steamy in your shower, um, all of that is aerosolized drinking water. Um, so we are actually studying whether or not um, shower heads, different shower heads can reduce that opportunistic pathogen load in both the aerosols and the water. Uh, so we are studying like a conventional one you can buy on Amazon. We're studying a filter based and then a shower head that has silver nanoparticles in it. Hmm. Uh, so that's that main project, which is, super cool. Um, we're getting really good data with it. Um, and we have this great opportunity now that the, 
biofilm and the water and the pipes has become stagnant for how many months with COVID. So this will be really interesting data, I think. <laughs> yeah, you'll see what's been going on in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love good data. Shower heads that filter and then also there's ones you say that use silver nanoparticles. Yes. Oh, so the Amazon marketplace for shower heads is a <laughs> wonderful and magical place. Um, <laughs> so there is a lot of claims um, from different, you know, uh, businesses, sellers that say, oh, there's a carbon filter in the shower head. It's going to get all the bugs out. Um, but see, these claims aren't absolutely necessarily backed by regulatory agencies. Um, and uh, not, they're not really tested in a meaningful way. Um, so there is a test that they commonly do where they pass the water through their, their technology and then either plate it in like perfect incubator settings or on interesting surfaces or what have you and say, oh, there's no bugs, it's great. Um, but we're trying to see whether or not these claims can be backed up in a real live shower um, because this rig functions exactly like a home uh, and it's flushed every day like someone's taking a shower. Um, so these are going to be like really applicable results. So uh, yeah, and in terms of the silver nanoparticle, um, there's a huge field blooming with the antibiotic properties um, or the antimicrobial properties, which is a better term, for um, silver nanoparticles. So what they do is they coat the interior where the water is flowing through with silver nanoparticles to see whether or not that, well, they say it reduces the bacterial load coming out. Uh, but of course, when you test that material for you know, long contact time in the lab, of course you're gonna get great results. So it'll be really interesting to see if those results are indeed what we see um, during our study. Yeah, that does sound really, like it would be really interesting results. Oh, it is, yeah. Um, it's been really interesting as like a first real project in grad school to be able to run the entire rig and be the one who kind of figures out like, how this project is going to happen. Um, and that's been a really great first grad project for me. Yeah. Uh, what degree are you working on right now? I am on the PhD track. Um, so I just finished my first year in the program. Um, and yeah, the PhD program is long and windy. Um, so I have yet to become a PhD student because I haven't taken the qualifying exam yet, but we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of steps on that trail. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, right now I'm focusing on classes and mm -hmm. these research projects and, you know, waiting for that big milestone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to backtrack for a second. So, I have a uh, weird question. Were you drawn to pre-med to be a doctor because you thought some sort of medical thing was cool, but thought doctor was the only thing? Not I'm necessarily. 
I really wanted a, like a terminal degree in my field. Um, because I really have valued education as like a personal, like characteristic of myself. Um, so I thought I want to help people. I need to be a doctor that doctors help people. Um, but then I was part of a program that did like in-home uh, nursing care as part of like a hospital volunteer program. Um, and I did not like that at all. <laughs> I'm like, mm, maybe not, yeah. but you know, working to help people on this population basis, mm-hmm. um, that's like very common in public health, um, mm-hmm. which is what I'm minoring in. It has been really eye-opening and it's like oh I can help a lot of people without necessarily telling someone to take their medication <laughs> you know yeah yeah there's so. lots of ways to help people so you can help larger swaths of people instead of like several individual people yeah right. exactly so I asked that question because as I talk to more and more people in STEM I find that when we're kids or whatever it seems that we have like something that we latch on to that's like kind of what we're interested in, but it's really just like next to what we're really interested in. And we just don't yeah. know that that other thing is like a thing that really exists. Like for me, it's like, oh, biology. But what I really meant was like wildlife biology. Right, <laughs> right. Biology. That's why I was curious if that was, if it was something similar to that or not. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would like say it's kind of similar, um, but more so there are other options besides just med school that yeah. I think it's it's hard to get exposure to that when you're like much younger oh for so, sure for sure yeah it's great to try it out while you're like you know still figuring things out before mm-hmm. getting a degree and realizing you don't like it <laughs> yeah for sure I think that's why for me volunteering in high school for like random things was kind of important and helped me see what I didn't didn't like um, but oh, not everybody yeah. has that chance, but if you do, it's a, it's a good opportunity. Right, um, right. Yeah, so you switched to environmental engineering, which seems to me like a big jump, but maybe it's not really. I don't know. Um, I think it really was. Um, I mean, it's a huge difference. I was a uh, biochemistry and molecular biology major in my undergrad, but I was so, so, so um, lucky to have an advisor who gave me the project working with the wastewater, which is an environmental project. It's more environmental chemistry, but like it really sparked something within me. Um, And I really had that passion for, oh wait, if we don't fix these environmental problems, then, you know, we won't be able to fix a bunch of other problems that are so prevalent in everything. Um, And I absolutely love that project. I love the, the whole thing about it. And I got an internship my uh, junior, the summer of my junior year. um, And I actually got to go out to Colorado and I did a truly environmental engineering internship. And that just like it clicked and it felt really good. So that's kind of why I did the full jump um, over to environmental engineering. That's awesome. I love hearing when someone finds their their thing and it clicks for them. That's awesome. 
it, yeah, it was wonderful. Um, yeah, I cannot recommend highly enough for anyone who's still like, oh, I don't know about this to like, just do an internship. If you hate it, it's like 10 weeks and then it's done. But like, yeah. you know, a lot of times you have these incredible life-changing experiences, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. To, to that, I had a guy who worked for me one summer, like four years ago now, five years ago. And he was in college or whatever. He was super tall, which was super helpful because we were doing um, tree measurements. So we, like sometimes, so when you do tree measurements, you do the diameter at breast height, which is like typically four and a half feet off the ground. It's just called sure. BBH. But there's like ways to account for tree being like buttress because it's flooded or whatever. So, anyway, so sometimes it's higher off the ground. And we all think that. Anyway, he was super tall. It was super helpful. And he was a wildlife and fisheries major or something. He hated it. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, I mean, he was a good sport about it, but he hated the work. He's like, this is not what I wanted to do. He's like, just, you know, but that was an example of like him finding out early that this is okay. This is not what I wanted to do. He's like, I like the, the work, but not doing this specifically. So he switched to environmental engineering. <laughs> um, so we didn't have to do as much like field work, because <laughs> our yeah. field work heavy. But that was just an example of like he thought that's what he wanted to do. He did this summer internship. Was like, nah, that's not exactly it, and switched. And I, I mean, I hope he's happy now. I assume he is. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But sometimes Dang. it goes that way. But at least you know, you know, and you right. got the good work experience, whether you enjoy the job or not. Exactly, something to put on your uh, application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was, for as much as he hated me, he was a hard worker. So, I mean, <laughs> to him to stick it out. <laughs> oh, well, that's positive. Yeah, it's just funny. That's what I always think of when people are like, oh, but what if you hate it? Well, maybe you do hate it, but most of the time, you know, maybe you don't. But yeah. And even if it's not like, no. like your ideal work, like you still learn like a lot about even yourself doing it. So, yeah, yeah exactly. He yeah. knew he hated trudging through a swamp, and I don't blame him. <laughs> not what am I not asking you about your work that I should be asking? I would say how concerned you should be about these opportunistic pathogens, because um, that's a big thing. Either when I tell people I'm looking at NAS, I'm looking at a Legionnaire's disease in your shower there is a, oh no, there's Legionnaire's disease in my shower. And what I got to say is please continue to take a shower. It's okay. <laughs> um, this is something that affects only a small amount of people and the people that it affects are taking preventative measures with their healthcare providers most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so recommend turn your fan on. <laughs> don't let it get too steamy um, if you're super concerned, but, you know, there shouldn't be an initial panic about these, um, these pathogens in the drinking water. And that's something that is hard to convey um, that I found while doing my communication of my project, but it is still very important on the flip side, you know, um, we've had a significant decrease in uh, conventional waterborne pathogens. So like your um, 
E. coli and um, other like fecally transmitted pathogens, the incidence of those types of infection from drinking water have diminished dramatically in the past century, whereas these kind of bizarre opportunistic pathogens are actually increasing um, as much as like, I believe it's 200% in some areas. So it's becoming a rising issue, especially with the aging population in the U.S. and other developed countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's amazing. <laughs> to me, like the risk for the average person is probably pretty small. Um, yeah. And like you said, if you already have health concerns or whatever, you probably already. It's on the radar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know I've never heard of these things specifically, but um, I've heard of other things, you know, being in wastewater. There's just, I guess, water in general, like, let me backtrack for a second. So in New Orleans, where I do not live, but where I work a lot there, they get their drinking water from the Mississippi River. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Not ideal. No. Uh, And a lot of times the treatment plants fail fairly regularly and there's a boil advisory yes and that's really common in New Orleans um (laughs) which is unfortunate but the thing that I'm thinking of is that there's like I don't know exactly what it's called it's like the some kind of brain eating amoeba and that might not be the right word that keeps popping up every once in a while in New Orleans (laughs) and that can't be a lot of places but New Orleans is ancient and frequently has water treatment problems yeah, um, I knew that I was always like aware of that. Like, don't breathe in the water while I'm in the shower in New Orleans. <laughs> yes, yeah, but it's actually funny you bring that up. The brain eating amoeba, um, the main one people talk about when they talk about these kind of nasty brain eaters um, is actually called Nigleria fowleri. Um, and this amoeba is really interesting because, believe it or not, it also lives in that sticky biofilm in the pipes. Yeah, at very low levels, like, the possibility of you getting an amoeba from taking a shower is, you know, very small. Um, But it's really interesting because the interactions between Legionella nemophila in particular is the most studied, and these types of free-living amoeba are actually intertwined. They're part of the same life cycle. So the the Legionella, the little Legionnaire disease bacteria, actually goes inside the amoeba to replicate and then bursts open. And wow. all these Legionella come out of these amoeba. Um, and that's actually what my thesis will be on, is whether or not these amoeba have any role in this like biofilm to aerosol to human respiratory tract pathway that we're seeing in um, these cases from drinking water. So it's funny you bring that up, you know, it seems like a lot of drinking water things are combined in some way, shape, or form, and it's just about connecting the dots. (laughs) Yeah, so that was, I just brought that up because that's just the one I hear about the most, and I would like to clarify that it's not super common. It's like rare, but New Orleans has water treatment issues, and so that's It's just the place that I am aware of it because it's down the road for me. Um, so yeah, I didn't know about the rest of them, but I have to imagine that on the whole that they're, you know, pretty rare. Someone's going to get impacted. Yeah. 
The boil advisory is usually for like your classic fecal coliform infections um, yeah. and things of that nature. We get those a lot here too <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Really? Yeah. Where does Pittsburgh get its drinking water from? Um, so it depends where in Pittsburgh you are. Um, usually it is from the Allegheny River, I believe. Um, that's at least where, don't quote me on this, but PWSA, the main water um, authority, gets theirs from. Where I live, though, which is kind of outside of the downtown region, has a totally different treatment plant that's yeah. responsible. Um, and that's another thing that's like really fascinating about doing a jump from, say, like chemistry to engineering. It's not just what's happening in your lab bench, it's, oh no there's random pipes everywhere and no one knows where they go. And uh -huh. now you need to figure out why there's, you know, stuff in them. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it's really, it's really an interesting thing to go into. Um, so. And the pipe complexity seems like that would also depend on the age of the city because somewhere oh, yeah. like New Orleans, that's like 300 years old. There's probably oh, no yeah. telling what's happening down there. <laughs> oh. Um, and then somewhere newer maybe would have different set of complications. I mean, I'm not an expert, but that's just what yeah. it seems Yeah, usually the older the city, the more interesting the invisible infrastructure is. Um. <laughs> that's a good word for it. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, I was just curious because I said New Orleans gets their drinking water from the Mississippi River, but Baton Rouge, which is just an hour from New Orleans, gets their drinking water from an aquifer, not from the Mississippi River. Yeah. Um, but I think the aquifer is recharged, you know, underground from the river oh, yeah. somewhat and, and surface water, rainwater. But, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, not directly from the Mississippi. Yeah. Um, but so it's, you know, I was just curious. It's a random question. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. Um, especially whenever you think about at least the city of Pittsburgh's really interesting water uh, problems. Um, the wastewater treatment plant for the city of Pittsburgh has a lot of um, sewage overflows, uh, which they're currently trying to fix, but you know, it's a challenging infrastructure problem. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, you know, like water is water at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, it's all coming from somewhere, you know. <laughs> no, I hear you. Cause uh, one of the things that I think is cool about wetlands is how that they filter water out and they absorb nutrients, oh, yeah. nutrients and all of this stuff. But it can't, it, like coastal Louisiana can't do that water filtration job because it's disconnected from the Mississippi River, which is full right. of things like nitrogen or whatever and sediment. Um, but historically, it would have acted as like this, you know, sink for all of these things that the river was carrying before it ended up in the Gulf of Mexico. And instead, now we just get all this stuff in the Gulf and these dead zones every summer um, yeah. because of all the nutrients and everything. So I just in general, I find like what happens with water and where it goes and like all that stuff is just really interesting to me because it's different everywhere. Yeah, it really is. And that's also something you don't really think about is like how just going downriver a little bit, there's a whole different set of you know, complexities in how water is managed or how, um, 
like the people engage with the water. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, for yeah, sure. are really cool. I love them. <laughs> yeah, they're like giant wastewater treatment facilities, you know, they but are. also provide all these other services. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And also, you know, they're pretty, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things, maybe it's just me, that I've like become more aware of lately is things that we didn't know about being in water as much as they are, like microplastics or yes. leftover bits of prescription medicine. Uh, yeah. I have a friend who studies that, or both of those things actually. And it's just mm -hmm. like, kind of surprising all the things that can, you know, be in everyday water. Oh yeah, trace analysis of surface waters is so fascinating. Um, that was my intro to environmental. Um, we studied all sorts of antidepressants, um, and like how they're affected by these different types of disinfection processes. Um, so yeah, it's like pretty alarming. Same, same kind of thing. Oh, there's antidepressants in my water. It's like, yes, everything you take comes, comes out. So yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's like very, yeah. And it's like, there needs to be more, guidelines in place for things like that like how much is too much like mm -hmm. of course we have the technology to say all of these things are in the water but there's not a, a lot of guidance on how much is too much you know especially right. for these unregulated compounds um yeah. so like what's what the limit should be to be right. safe or something yeah 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 yeah, it's something I never thought about until a friend of mine in grad school was studying, like, pharmaceuticals in wastewater. And I'm just like, you know, I feel like I should have thought about this, but I never thought about some medicine I take not being completely absorbed because right. I just never thought about it, I guess. I don't, or, you know, don't know, whatever. And yeah. so it's certainly true with probably everything we consume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Wild. Yeah. And, you know, a big part of just engineering and maybe STEM as a whole is like figuring out what we can do about it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so everything from, oh, we have to figure out how to do better drug delivery to, oh, we need to figure out better treatment processes can be part of these amazing solutions by such smart people working together. Mm -hmm. And that's like the beauty of like STEM as a whole. Like we get to work with people who have such different uh, skills than we do and like that's part of what makes it fun and exciting because you always learn something new <laughs> oh yeah I learned something new from all these awesome people in STEM all the time it's awesome <laughs> and it's so like big and varied and there's so many cool things happening um, yeah it's not just you know chemistry or just math or just you know wetland science or whatever it's everything in between right right that's a lot it's awesome i think it's also important for people who aren't in stem to like realize that it's not just like someone trapped in like a basement in the corner <laughs> of a building um like it has to do with everybody and you know mm -hmm. scientists can be in the field scientists can do stuff only on computers some you know build really cool stuff like mm -hmm. it's amazing 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, I think a lot of the time, you know, the stereotype of a scientist is someone in a lab coat in a lab somewhere. And certainly that is a big aspect of science, but it's certainly not everything, you know? Yeah. There's field scientists, there's people who just do computer stuff, um, which could be any number of amazing things, you know? Right. Um, Just because they're on a computer doesn't mean they're all doing the same thing. Uh, Exactly. So many things you can do with all the powerful computing we have these days. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's just so many cool aspects. Yeah. What would be your dream job after you've finished, you know, getting your degrees and stuff. <laughs> there is such a thing. Oh my goodness. You could be like me and just don't know because I have no idea what my dream job would be. <laughs> well, as of right now, as a naive early stage graduate student, um, I really love how, like seeing how my work can impact people's lives. Um, and I'm hoping to either do consulting on how to you know, implement mitigation strategies for these opportunistic pathogens, um, or maybe even going into regulation, you know, fighting to get them on, like, the long list of stuff drinking water plants have to be aware of, or, you know, something of that nature. Um, I'm really quite enamored with this field so far so I want to continue in it it's just kind of unclear where that will lead (laughs) yeah 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 I'm sure it will clear up as you walk down the trail you know I'm sure (laughs) you know and everybody's different I ask that question a lot because I'm just curious but I I mean if you ask me what my dream job is I don't know I just want to do cool science and be outside (laughs) there can be any number of things yeah yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah. You get to help lots of people doing that or, you know, doing what you're doing now and then down the road, I'm sure. Yeah, I really hope so. That's the, that's the goal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's powerful to be able to make a change that could, you know, really affect someone's life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I I'm really fortunate. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the other thing about STEM is because the work that is done is often behind the scenes, even though it may have, you know, impacts to the public or public health or something. Um, So I think it's cool to highlight all the behind, I say behind the scenes because to us it doesn't feel behind the scenes, but you know, from the outside it does. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I think that science can be a black box of sorts for certain like groups that just don't like kind of have that window into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is exciting to be able to like find truths that can make people's lives better. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of what really excites me most about being in a field like this. Um, So yeah. 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 I hear you. Me too. Cause all of the work (laughs) that we do is all, all of our data is public which is super rare that our entire data set is public, you know, yeah. after we go through, you know, a process to make sure all the data is correct and everything, obviously. But, mm-hmm. but like all that data gets to go to use for somebody to use, to do something, to answer some question or whatever. And I, that's really, it's really important work. Oh yeah. And the people who look in these huge data sets and find stuff like, you know, pr- props to them. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah. Is there anything else you want to share, Sarah? Uh, anything I'm forgetting or should ask about? Something kind of tangentially related. Um, since I am in Pittsburgh with all of these uh, opportunistic pathogen uh, opportunities here, because Pittsburgh does have a higher than average incidence rate of these um, infections, there are also a bunch of other amazing labs at Pitt that like work on these. Um, so I think a fun, fun story, or maybe not so fun story, um, has to do with a, a PI in the School of Medicine, I believe, and he runs a, uh, like a program called Phage Hunter, and he, this, it's a program that lets high school students uh, isolate bacteriophages, which are a type of virus that only affects a specific type of bacteria. Um, and, you know, the kids get to go hunt for the phages in soil and isolate them. And once they find them, they can name them. It's like, you know, amazing early outreach um, for the biomedical sciences. And he got a call from a doctor in the United Kingdom, actually. Um, and there was a young, like a young girl who had a really awful mycobacterial infection. So one of our nasty bugs and they couldn't treat her using conventional treatment. So they wanted to look into phage therapy and whether or not they could do some kind of phage therapy, which is when you take these bacteriophages and try and use them to kill the bacteria instead of antibiotics. So super rare in um, like Western countries. I know it's done kind of in like um, the old Soviet Union. They did that um, as a therapy, but he was able to find a bacteriophage in the library and saved this this young girl's life and she's like completely uh healed from that infection um so it's really incredible to like be in that kind of environment with people who do these quite literally life-saving feats yeah. um, especially in like this like teeny tiny bubble of pathogens you don't talk about unless you are you know at risk or affected by them um so that's like one of my like favorite stories about you know the fight against <laughs> opportunistic pathogens yeah um, so that's awesome that they were able to work together to figure it out and that the doctor from the uk like was able to oh, yeah. reach out and all of those things that all of those things happened to be able to treat that person Right. Yeah. And apparently she's like living a really great life now, Good. like not worried about that infection. So Good. amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think, I mean, I've heard the word phage, but can you tell me what that is? I don't really know. Yeah. About yeah. So I don't really know where the word phage comes from, to be honest with you, but essentially they're these viruses that are, you know, ubiquitous in the environment. They're, they're everywhere. 
um, and they specifically infect bacteria. So when we think of like a virus, we think of like the flu virus um, and that infects our cells, but these bugs, the bac or the bacteriophages don't want to infect like human cells. They just want to infect bacterial cells. Um, and you know, they usually infect one specific type of cell, a uh, bacteria cell. So you can kind of like match your phage to your bacteria. Um, so when you hear phage therapy, that's what they're talking about, um, which we'll hear a lot more of them in the future, I'm sure. Um, yeah, probably. That's really cool. Um, and also that doctor's program with all the outreach and getting kids involved is brilliant. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think isolation from the environment is fun, period. Um, like, I get to do that from time to time with um, my water samples. Super fun. But, like, to have, like, high school kids be able to be part of that. And, like, you know, that's something you really wouldn't get a lot of exposure to. Like, mm -hmm. it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did a program in high school called River Watch where we just, like, had this one stream in town that we went and took water samples from. I think it was like once a month. They did like some very basic measurements, but you know, we did it every month. Um, we did some like E. coli, sort of uh -huh. like the Petri dish and the gel or whatever. Yeah. Um, the only lab work I've ever done was with those little <laughs> Petri dishes. Uh, but it was cool and also appalling to see what was in the water, but like that's cool information, you know? And like that was sort of like what got me hands-on doing environmental outdoor work. I'm like, oh, people, can do this stuff outside like and get that's yeah. a job all right <laughs> so and it's cool that the you know those kids like you know certainly all of them won't go into any sort of you know field like that but they got exposed to it and it might you know hit somebody's fancy and yeah maybe right. that kid will be like oh that's what I wanted to do in either way yeah. it's just something cool to do oh yeah that's really cool. a great way to spend a few weeks I'm sure yeah, yeah so I don't know, that's like my super fun, this is relatable story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's cool. I'm glad yeah. that they were able to, to use that and save that person. Yeah, I really hope that, you know, that become like that becomes, you know, a bigger thing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. at least um, to like look into phage therapy because, you know, we're not necessarily talking about it, but broad antibiotic resistance is absolutely crazy, especially in these settings where people who are super susceptible to those things are. Um, and it's like a really interesting new, uh, new field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about, I feel like science is after you've answered one question, you don't have 10 more questions. <laughs> oh yeah. You have like an ever expanding body of knowledge and also an ever, you know, expanding bank of questions. <laughs> so, um, hey, that's what keeps you in a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just cool to learn more, you know, and absolutely more about our world and all the things that, you know, happen or that we didn't intend to happen or did. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you see a lot of that in your wetlands. <laughs> yeah, honestly. What we're dealing with now with wetlands loss and stuff and all the challenges is honestly like the after effects of things done a hundred something years ago. Oh, yeah. it's always like 
unintended consequences, you know, like, oh, yeah, for example, this new river, what they wanted to do was levy the rivers so things would stop flooding and they achieved that. But how these other, you know, you know, effects that happened and are still happening now um, that mm -hmm. we didn't know about in, you know, the 1800s or whatever. Yeah. And certainly that's that sort of scenario where you something happens and then you don't, you know, you don't anticipate some consequences five, 10, 100 years down the road. It's certainly not just, you know, in environmental science kind of thing. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to think about the long term and you just don't know, especially if it's something new or different or whatever. Right, right. But the only thing we can do is to just keep learning and fix what we can. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for uh, doing this. It's been awesome to get to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for reaching out. I really, I love talking about my science. So this has been really, really fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel here. I wanted to ask you a favor. I would love it if you go over to Facebook, if you have Facebook, um, to Storytellers of STEM. The website is facebook.com slash Storytellers of STEM, or it's at Storytellers of STEM. And go like my page and go tell your friends if you enjoy the podcast, um, because if I get the page, or we together actually, get the page to a thousand likes, I will do an AMA and y'all can ask me anything. And that would be fun and enjoyable and entertaining. So help me out and then we'll do an AMA and it'll be fun. Also follow me on Twitter at Flying Cypress so I can share all of the cool storytellers of STEM stuff with you. Thanks. It's Rachel. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Storytellers of STEM. I know I enjoyed recording it and I love to be able to share everybody's stories with the world. So if you have a story in STEM that you would like to share, please, please, please hit me up. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress or over on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. And I encourage you to reach out to me if you want to tell me a story. Um, I also, even if you don't want to tell me a story, encourage you to gallop on over to Facebook and like my page and I will share tons of cool and interesting things that all the storytellers are doing or have done or things related to things that we've talked about. So there's a ton of information out there that's awesome and that I'll be sharing. So yeah, go like the Facebook page, reach out to me if you want to be on the podcast and have a brilliant day. Thank you for listening.